Hello and welcome to this special themed episode and our 121st FIS Freight and Commodity Podcast on Wednesday 8th of March. I'm Mopani and you can call me Mo. This podcast is here to bring you guests who update you on the commodity complex. Uh, you can also stay up to date with our daily commentary and weekly analysis on everything going on by signing up for our app FIS Live. And you can also follow our Twitter page at Freight Investor or find us on LinkedIn. Remember, we also always appreciate your feedback and ideas. If you have questions you'd like us to answer, please leave a comment on our post or send us an email at news at freightinvestor.com. You are also welcome to share feedback and ideas through this email or even feature as a guest on one of our podcasts or perhaps recommend one. Today we've got a special themed episode. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. It's on carbon EUA pricing, shipping and our new consultancy. It's going to have a discussion on the price dynamics of EUAs and how shippers can manage their carbon risk with special guest carbon markets and shipping expert Richard Stevenson, who we've had the pleasure of working with. I'm going to put my feet up on this one and Hugh Taylor, our project manager at FIS, will lead it. And so have a listen to this interview. Hello, I'm Hugh Taylor. For those of you who don't know me, I'm tasked with setting up the new Green Transition Consultancy Services for FIS, which marks the dawn of a new approach by us in our efforts to tackle the challenges of the commodity derivatives markets and provide value for our customers. Over the next few months, I'll run a series of podcasts as I look at different markets and sectors under the scope of our Green Transition team and think about how best to leverage our knowledge and skills to help our clients within them. In today's episode, as the price of a European Union allowance, an EUA, nears record highs, we consider what factors affect price. First, we'll look back at major price swings from over the past 10 years, and then we'll move on to other key drivers. One of these is the imminent inclusion of the shipping market in the EU ETS scheme. Then, and seeing as shipping has long played a mainstay role at FIS, we'll discuss how our shipping clients might best manage their carbon risk. Finally, I'll talk a little about our new consultancy and how we might be able to help our clients navigate these choppy waters. With me to discuss these matters is friend of FIS Richard Stevenson, a shipping entrepreneur who, amongst other things, has worked on shipping-related carbon projects. But first, some basics. What is an EUA? EUAs are the main unit traded in the European Union's emissions trading system which forces high emission sectors, such as manufacturers, power companies and airlines, to pay for each tonne of carbon dioxide they emit as part of the bloc's efforts to meet its ambitious climate targets. On Tuesday the 21st, the EUA price tested all-time highs, crossing €95 a tonne. That's a rise of over 25% since the start of the year. The reasons for the surge, according to most key analysts, are a combination of cooler weather forecasts and expectations of lower wind power output. This is because these will lead to more demand for power from Europe's fossil fueled power plants, which need to buy carbon permits in line with their emissions. But what else affects price? In order to answer this, Richard will talk a little about major price movements over recent years. Richard. Thanks, you. So clearly when thinking about price, one has to think about the demand and the supply side. So obviously the weather constraints or the weather variations have an impact on demand, but it's worthwhile referencing supply because that has materially changed over the last Mm. 15 plus years. 
specifically when thinking at the beginning in 2005, the, the system has always been to try to project economic output and to project CO2 demand given that output. So whenever there's a projection and that projection varies from reality, as was the case in 2008 when I say an unexpected economic shock resulted in more allowances than were taken up based on a lack of economic activity, that resulted in an overhang and a compounded supply, which was carried over from year to year and gradually built up. So the earlier low prices in the early 2000s, uh, the early 2010s, was as a result of a compounded oversupply. Mm -hmm. They realized this, made some tweaks from 2016 onwards, around the time of the Paris Agreement, and that contraction on the supply side moved hand in hand with price increases. Oh, so that's the uh, MSR, the Market Stability Reserve. Yes, so the Market Stability Reserve, as you say, is, is a, was a way to effectively allow a certain amount of credits to be removed, or allowances to be removed from the system when they, when they reached a certain level of build-up, but then they could be added to the system if there was a shortfall. Hmm. So it's a way to regulate the amount of uh, effective supply, which has a price impact. So all other things remaining constant, there's a natural progression for the price to increase. They've actually introduced a program of reducing the number of allowances issued per year. It went up from 1.74 to 2.2%. And that means that there's a natural trajectory towards the upside, where prices, all other things remaining, remaining constant, with the same economic activity, the same set of emissions, the number of allowances will decrease necessarily uh, having a negative or positive price impact. So what you're saying is everything else remaining constant, there will be a steady increase in price over the years to come? There should be, yes. Okay, that's clearly something EUA shipping players are going to need to consider. How does the energy mix in Europe impact on EUA price trajectories, i.e. if Putin turns off the gas taps or tomorrow the wind stops blowing? Well, fortunately, we have we don't need to guess because Putin did turn off the gas taps and the wind did, to, to some extent, stop blowing. But this is this is a big point. So, the European energy matrix is significant, and the demand for fossil fuels really is a function of how much alternatives are taking the slack. So, when wind is when gusts are low and people still need to power things in the same way and at an increasing rate. People need to find um, alternatives and the French rely heavily on the nuclear industry. Unfortunately, as a result of COVID holidays and lockdowns, etc., maintenance was strained and therefore much of that was taken offline. And as a result of, let's say, Putin's activities, Germany that has as options, uh, yes, some wind, but very little in the way of nuclear post Fukushima. Germany became very, very heavily dependent on Russian gas and coal. When the gas taps were switched off, the bid for coal uh, increased. The ratio of CO2 between gas and coal is two to one. So when the gas is gone, um, that effectively for the same amount of energy output, you double the amount of carbon emitted. And of course, one has to buy EUAs to justify that, which increased the demand for EUAs as a knock-on effect of all of those factors. So yeah, it's, it's a super interesting topic. So long story short, if coal use increases, then EUA price rises. Would that be the same for any of the other main energy types used? or? Yes, but to a lesser extent. Of all the energy types, as I mentioned, the coal is, is the most carbon-heavy. 
of all the the options available. So you know you have base load energy, which is essentially the amount that's, that that an economy needs to function at a basic level, and there's a variable component, which um, you know that's much more suitable to renewables because they are intermittent, and so you have to have a ba- one has to have a base load and and so on. And the base load energy mix in general, in kind of in the world, certainly amongst G7 countries. Is is still fossil fuel based because it is a constant, and the infrastructure has been built around that. And people are gradually bringing in uh, renewables such as wind and solar, with offshore wind being perhaps the most promising components. But in the end, even though offshore wind is more constantly gusty than onshore, it, it still means that the base load stays as it is. And then, if the options are nuclear power, gas, and coal and gas is switched off and nuclear is switched off, then what's left is coal, which is why massive demand for coal has seen a huge uh, rise in the bids for EUAs. All right, okay, that's uh, great. That's fantastic, Richard. Uh, Thanks very much for that uh, overview. Now, moving on to uh, shipping in relation to EUA price. To summarise the problem, shipping kicks out just short of 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions and this portion is growing. The International Maritime Organization, the IMO, has predicted shipping CO2 emissions could increase 250% by 2050 if steps to address this aren't taken. In efforts to respond to building pressure to decarbonize, a number of bodies have stepped up. Leading these is the European Union, which has now introduced regulation that is sending shockwaves through the market. From 2024, shippers will be required to calculate their emissions and pay for them at the end of the year. This payment is made by way of surrendering EUAs. This means purchasing and submitting these certificates, with each one permitting the emission of one tonne of carbon. Ship owners must surrender allowances amounting to 40% of their emissions for 2024, increasing to 70% for 2025 and to 100% from 2026 onwards. But for now, the upshot is that the maritime transport sector will soon have to factor its emissions into its balance sheet. This will fundamentally change shipping. Richard, who is going to ultimately pay for this? So the European Union has adopted the polluter pays principle, which means that the fuel buyer or bunker buyer pays for uh, EUA allowances. Okay. Does the type of charter matter uh, in terms of who pays? Yes. So the voyage and spot market will uh, compel the the ship owner to pay for the EUAs, the time charter market will compel the charterer to pay. So does that mean the ship owner pays? Yes. For voyage, so the spot market, yes, the ship owner will pay. But then in the time charter market, the charter will pay. And how might that play out for an average ship owner? So if we take into account the largest shipping sector, which is the dry bulk, and within that, say, Panamax, Panamax quite often in Europe, so we can assume a Panamax that spends 50% of its time in Europe, burning 33.5 tonnes of fuel a day. Uh, that, If we map that to a 100 euro EUA price and assume it's operating for the majority of the year, thinking about it from the, the fuel perspective, that will increase in the first wave of the introduction of the EUA, that will increase costs of bunker fuel by 10%. Bearing in mind that bunker costs are the most significant costs of a voyage, that will then increase in the next phase in 2026 to 18%, and finally to 
26%, which is material. And uh, Wow, that could really send shockwaves through the market. Yes. Um, given cost effect on bunker level, do you think that's going to have an effect on the charter market? I think when people are negotiating time charters, uh, or any kind of charters, there will be a, a push-pull effect between the ship owner and the charterer as to who wears the cost ultimately. It will depend on the power plays at particular points in time, particularly on the spot markets, where if one ship and multiple cargoes are available and the ship owner at that point is able to negotiate good terms, then things could go in the favour of the ship owner and vice versa if there's a big queue and one cargo. So the market will work out how to price it in, but it will certainly be priced in. And even though the obligations we talked about before are from the perspective of European Union, the charter market is likely to work out how best to allocate those costs in reality. Okay, thank you, Richard. Um, now, a lot of our shipping clients are interested in understanding what this means from a risk management perspective. So risk in this context means the risk of losing money because of having to spend more than necessary. The first way to avoid this is to surrender your credits on time because failing that, you'll be hit with a €100 Euro charge per credit not surrendered, in addition to having to actually buy the necessary credit. With this covered, there are many ways in which a smart trader might ensure a better price. The key is to have a strategy. Now, I assume a minimum expectation should be not paying above average price. And presumably also, towards the date when shippers have to surrender their credits, the risk of a price rise increases. Richard, do you agree with those assumptions, and can you take them any further? Yes, first of all, I, I do agree. Um, clearly, there's a supply-side uh, element, because the European Union will issue allowances in view of the inclusion of shipping within the EU ETS. So it won't necessarily be that there will simply be a, a static supply and then just masses of demand. But mm -hmm. certainly the, the timing of take-up of these credits will be known by many and the risk of a spot event in the end of Q1 2025 is much higher as a result. Um, in terms of minimum expectation, just by averaging in throughout the year, buying credits based on a carbon calculation at the end of every month does remove the possibility of that spot risk because you're simply averaging in. And On that averaging in, so with a price rise in the, in, in the month before the uh, surrendering date, then the assumption would be that the next step would be to buy the month before and so on. Is that correct? Yes. So then that, that feedback loop would then go back to the beginning such that everyone would default in theory, to averaging in. Ah, okay, uh, I get you. Yeah, so it would just be a trickle backwards effect, in a, if you will. But what's likely to happen is that a very large number of people will not get themselves organised and they will scramble to do things at the last minute, mm. which will result in a short-term pent-up demand, which will be anticipated anyway, and so the price will necessarily have some risks to the upside. And, of course, an upside in the price here is a, is a, a cost risk from a shipping perspective. So averaging in minimises that risk. But similarly, just by taking the average and averaging in, that's a passive strategy that would outperform a spot risk strategy on the day. But being able to anticipate, or at least interpret, how to separate short-term price spikes from fundamental versus technical moves would be the next stage of trading precision. Because... Very often, things that have nothing to do with the medium to, to long-term fundamentals 
do have short-term effects. For example, you know, holidays, spikes that are based on mismatches of auction timings. Uh, things to that effect can have short-term effects on price spikes. We saw some of those last year in the summer. And if one is averaging in such that you're buying every month passively, that again will outperform the spot element, but it's it's relatively straightforward if one understands the market to be able to say, well, actually, that's unlikely to persist for more than a few months. So I'll withhold buying to confirm my average at that point and instead delay and then recoup at lower levels when things correct back to fundamental levels, which they should invariably do. Mm. So, yes, there's value in that. Um, so you've talked a little bit about a, a, a sort of simple strategy across the year. And what about the use of uh, derivatives, say futures and options? Uh, is it worth exploring these sort of more complex uh, hedging strategies? Yes, what I mean, everything. Yes, I mean, I think if, if one is very, very familiar with uh, the, the way to use these tools and can, can, has the facilities to put those trades on in a way that's clear to clients, then this is certainly worth exploring. And in the end, it's about cost minimization. Uh, so with an option, you can you have a visible idea of your maximum cost. It's the cost of the option. With the future, again, variability depending on the direction you're in is is predictable within a range, and there are associated stop-loss strategies that can mitigate those. So, yes, uh, certainly it's worth exploring, knowing that the end target is to reduce that cost. Yes, exactly. And this is the type of thing that FIS seeks to provide its clients. So we are aiming to be a one-stop shop for all our clients' EUA hedging, trade arranging and strategy needs. We provide tailored solutions for clients with services such as education, so education on uh, emissions, on regulation, on trading. Uh, We provide compliance cycle and reporting, so that's preparing you for the end of year EU ETS and IMO reporting, monitoring and verification requirements. So that's preparing you for end-of-year EU ETS and IMO reporting, monitoring and verification requirements. Research, strategy, so that could be forecast modelling, risk and scenario analysis, structured trades and hedging advice, and broking, connecting you with our extensive network and first-class service. So thanks very much for coming in today and sharing your insight, Richard. My pleasure. We'll be keen to get you back uh, before too long to discuss how voluntary carbon credits might be used in a shipping context. Oh, with pleasure. It's a very interesting area. Scope 3 allowances uh, are uh, a hot topic as well, so looking forward to it. Okay. In sum, managing carbon risk is an emerging and integral concern for the shipping industry. By using EUAs and taking advantage of the services provided by consultancies like ours, shipping clients can reduce their costs and comply with regulation. So get in touch to learn more. Our initial consultation is free at the point of delivery. So please write an email to hught at freightinvestor.com. We hope you found this podcast informative and useful, and we encourage you to take action to manage your carbon risk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the FIS podcast. Next up, we've got our regular brief update from the Ferris Complex with Hao in Shanghai. Hi, Hao. Hi, Mo. Hey, guys. So we mentioned that China NDRC has invited specialists to discuss the market control on INO. Uh, Do you think this will create a huge impact on the markets? It is one interesting question. Well, it's hard to say the direct impact, but we read similar stories in 2021. And DRC 
Biden had several rounds of appeals and conferences to resist irrational trades and mispricing on iron ore. When we finally saw a near half loss on iron ore in less than one month, but I think the bearish market in iron ore was always very fast and in a huge range. It is the third time in the RC setup meetings on this mispricing subject in 2023, so it's quite often this year. So I think this is worth mentioning that normally, well. There will be more meetings from NDRC for sure from now on, and with more details. However, market is complex. It is only one important variable. And then, how about the supply side of INO? Will there be more INO shipments、uh, in coming months,、um, perhaps to finalize this four-month bullish market? After the end of cyclones and floods in Australia and Brazil. Major miners will increase shipments in Q2 compared to Q1. In addition, China domestic miners will increase their output in Q2 as well. However, we saw Southeast and India, in fact, present a slower downstream activities. The indirect connection from the global scrap shortage to iron ore potentially caught an end in short run. When people realize that we still have many supply on iron ores in the coming weeks' time, while for countries using blast furnaces, still maintain a vague picture on the demand. For example, China house developers or Southeast Asia infrastructures. It is hard to say from fundamental side, but here we are on a crossroads for sure. So we have a moderate China specialized debts. And housing strategies from MPC Help this week. Then, for house developers, will largely maintain a cautious mind to optimize their debt structures instead of、uh, expanding for more houses. Then, productions and building materials would be orders to demand mode. That's why physical domestic steel in China was largely flat, given a strong market on future side last two weeks. Then. When we come back to iron ore, which could hardly reach higher highs compared to the late February. Thanks, Hal. Thanks, Mo. Have a nice one, guys. That's it for the week, folks. If you want to stay up to date with everything happening in the freight and commodity space, remember to sign up for our app FIS Live or follow us on Twitter at Freight Investor or find us on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to give us any feedback or suggestions, email us at newsfreightinvestor.com. You've been hearing from Mo and Hugh. Have a great week.